Hello, I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this occasion is the celebrated soprano Nicole Cabell, who was just in Cincinnati recently singing the Mozart Requiem with the Cincinnati Symphony and David Robertson, guest conductor. I've known Nicole since I walked into a cold and rather dreary rehearsal room at the Chicago Lyric Opera at the beginning of the 2000s when she was a member of the Young Artist Program there. And on that day, everybody was sick. And as I learned in this interview, so was Nicole, but she never told me. And that began a professional association that lasts to this day, which already counts six performances at Cincinnati Opera and another one to come in the 2019 season. Nicole and I talk about everything under the sun, her growing up in California, how important her mom has been in her career, and what it's like to be a teacher while you're still out in the field of battle being a celebrated soprano. My guest is soprano Nicole Cabell. Um, these um, podcasts are evergreen, but I couldn't let the uh, date of 2019 go past without mentioning that it marks your 10th anniversary of singing with Cincinnati Opera. You have been singing with us in a variety of roles, starting with the Countess. Well, you, you started out basically your first three appearances with you were our, you were our Mozart soprano. You were you know you were our go-to Mozart soprano, first with the Countess, then with Don Alvira, and then with Pamina as well. So you've done your Mozart gallery with us. Um, Nicole, I'd like to ask you to spin back a little bit and maybe talk about some of your very first, if not your very first encounter with the music of Mozart. Oh, okay. Well, first I have to say, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I honestly cannot. That Don't we look fabulous? <laughs> Ten <laughs> Evans, years you look better every year I see you. It's not fair. <laughs> Whatever you're Thank drinking, you. I want to drink that. Um, we Greeks moisturize from within. It's all that olive oil. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, so Mozart actually came upon me by accident, I have to say. Yes, I was never Mozart was never my favorite composer. Uh, and not because I didn't love the music, I really did, but I I thought it was very difficult to sing and it's still I still think it's very difficult to sing. It's something that I know as a professor, we assign Mozart to the young students and I was one of those kids assigned Mozart when I was younger. And it's just deceptive. We're given this music because it's lightly orchestrated. That's pretty much the, and it, it forces you to sing healthy and correctly. Um, but because technique has always been a little bit, when I, when I was younger, technique came slowly and it took a lot of time for me to figure out what I was doing. So Mozart was always, it just completely highlighted the things I needed to work on. So it just was not my go-to composer. I wanted to sing Puccini wanted to sing. Everybody does. Everybody that. wants to sing Buzalka, this stuff, um, which of course I wasn't ready for. So uh, I think my very first countess was with Cincinnati. Yes, you were my first yep. countess. Yep. And that was what made me fall in love with Mozart, hmm. that experience. Um, and that entrance aria is scary like the Dickens. Oh, the second one's. You're, you're the second up. one's a concerto, but the first one, the <laughs> yeah. first one, you are exposed in a way that, first of all, I think it's one of the great genius pieces in all of classical music because mm -hmm. in about two and a half minutes, you know this lady, you right. know ev you know nearly everything about her, mm -hmm. and Mozart and Da Ponte give you maybe thirty words, exactly, and maybe two minutes of music, yep. two verses, mm -hmm. and yet every soprano quakes oh, yeah. the first time they have to do it. Well, and not to be overly technical, but probably the worst vowel for a soprano to sing on is oh, oh, As porgy, in porgy. porgy. <laughs> <laughs> if it started on a, ah. a an E vowel, right? <laughs> e, E. Yeah. Um, you'd have somewhere to go, but it's it's a struggle because you, you start that and you have to be you have to sort of do enough warming up before you get on stage and right before you get on stage that you're in what we call the sweet spot singing. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be a struggle with such a dark vowel to, to begin on. Um, but yes, that's that's sort of the, that's what separates the women from the girls. <laughs> we say really, it's truly, it was one of the first arias I ever sang uh, when I was studying voice and I had been really afraid of it. So, um, 
anyway, having done the the role here, the reason I fell in love with it was, of course, the the house. Singing here is a dream. It's such a wonderful familial atmosphere. Um, Roger Norrington was our conductor, who, of course, Mozart genius, and taught me how, well, encouraged me to sing in real Mozartian style. And really from that point forward, I kind of brought that to all the other Mozart roles that I, that I was uh, performing. Um, I, f- I didn't do my first flute here. That was, that was, I think you might have been something like four or five. <laughs> so I was a well, little bit more I, warmed up into that. Yeah, and I, if I remember right, had you already done it at the Met at that point? Or maybe you were about to? Yes, but no. we did the English version at the That's Met, right. the abridged That's English it. version. Yeah, for the holiday season. Yeah, yeah. Um, that might have been before or after the one I did in Chicago. But I was doing flutes all over and so that was kind of that was already in my blood and Elvira was great too um and a very different character for Mm -hmm. you because you know one of the things that uh people remark about you so often is that she is a singer of such poise Mm -hmm. and a singer of such grace and to play a crazy lady (laughs) must have been fun well those are people who don't really know me that well (laughs) They would have thought, oh, Elvira, now her personality's coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but stuff like Elvira, characters like Elvira, similar to Musetta, characters that require a little bit more energy and spunk and Mm -hmm. drama and passion. Those are are not usually my go-to characters because on stage I do tend to – I do tend to want to move towards that that sort of regal, poised – Also, there's a vulnerability about the ladies that – you are famous for the Paminas and the Contessas mm-hmm. and Mimi, which mm-hmm. was your most mm-hmm. recent uh, mm-hmm. performances here at Cincinnati Opera. They are they are the vulnerable, tragic characters. Yeah, and, yeah. which uh, I love playing. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> you get to do another one when you come back in Yay. 2019 in Juliet. <laughs> I want to spin back though to uh, when first we met because I don't know if we've ever put this out there, but I will tell the story as best as I can remember. <laughs> I don't remember the year. Um, but you were in the Ryan Opera Center. Mm-hmm. So this is the early 2000s. Yes. And it was a day in the middle of the winter. Mm-hmm. And I had come to Chicago at the Lyric Opera to hear the singers in the Ryan Artist Program. And the person who was in charge of the program at the time instantly apologized when I came in the door. said, look, everybody's sick. <laughs> Some of them are going, it's Chicago. It's the middle of the winter. Everybody's got a cold or is just getting mm-hmm. over the flu. Um, a couple people had to cancel. And so it was a lot of... <coughs> Excuse me, I'd like to sing for you. (laughs) If you weren't the last one, you should have been the last one. You're the last one now in my imagination as I remember it. And you came in the room, and you weren't sick, and you opened your mouth and sang. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is what singing is supposed to be about. And we started working together immediately, (laughs) even long before I worked at Cincinnati Opera. And I'd love for you to spend a moment, not reflecting on that, but talking, because I know a lot of young singers are going to be listening to this, talking about auditions and mm-hmm. what's important for a young singer, um, what kind of headspace should they mm-hmm. be in when they're going into a room uh, without a costume, mm-hmm. without staging, and they have their five arias, mm-hmm. and they're going to present themselves in hopes of being hired. What's some advice for them? Well. And that's that's a really great question. It's something you know. I am a professor at this point. Um, You're teaching at DePaul, at DePaul University. DePaul University, and right. so you know, my students and I have this conversation all the time. Um, but before I talk about that, I I, I do want to say I do remember that day very clearly because did you did you think I wasn't sick? I thought you were sick. <laughs> you were. So I was one of the sick ones too. And what Evans might not remember or might not actually know is that I almost canceled that audition because I was sick. <laughs> so lucky me. <laughs> so I I actually use that day as an example of you know, a lot of singers think, oh, I'm not quite up to, or you know, they're not saying yes to to everything. And while that's wise most of the time, um, it it was one of those experiences that to me taught me, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? As long as you are don't have laryngitis, just do it anyway. Um, and lo and behold, I made a connection that has been one of the most important in my entire career. Um, so in my life, really. Evans is an advisor to me and just... just We've had a lot of fun together. Yes, that's for he's, sure. he's fantastic. That's for much. Um, but back to the question, yes. Uh, auditions, I think what happens is most, most of my students and actually a lot of my, uh, a lot of my peers 
they will say that they hate auditions. Most people do not like auditions because it's very they, artificial. They, well, and they think that they're that the people they are singing for are are kind of looking for problems and they want you to succeed. They want you to come there to hire somebody. Exactly. So they're not going to be purposefully trying to intimidate you or make you feel bad. This is the same for competitions. Everybody wants you to do well. Um, But what I did and what I try to tell what I try to encourage my students to do is to treat these auditions like a fun, if you can, a fun and slightly relaxed performance. Because if it's a performance and you're sort of nervous about it because it's extremely important, then you're probably going to clam up and have a lot of tension. Um, But if you just kind of relax about it and, and never be apologetic, and, and try not to be overly arrogant, of course, but just relax, relax, and and if you can in that small space, the most important thing you can do sort of technically is envision yourself on a bigger stage. Most people sing for those small rooms, and so they hold back and they get tense. And believe me, I did too. Um, but you sing, try to sing over the people you are singing for, as opposed to trying to fill the space between you and them. Try to sing over them to an imagined row of seats in a 2,000-seat house. That'll loosen you up, to, in, in my opinion. But, um, yeah. It'll also allow you to focus beyond the people sitting at a table. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Which does look a little bit like the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> I have to admit. It's very intimidating. Yeah. There's nothing worse than people sitting right in front of you, but that's the only way to do it. It's the only way they're going to hear you unless you're at their house. Um, but just take as much time as you need to to, to to get started, and when it's your time to sing... Fully be in character and sing over the people you're singing for. At least that's that is what I think um, could be helpful, and it's what I've heard from people mm-hmm. who've heard a lot of auditions that mm-hmm. they just want that. They want yeah. you to come out of your shell and just sing for a bigger. House. I want a performance. When Don't I you? hear, yeah. when I am in a room looking to cast or looking to understand, you know, a potential mm-hmm. young singer, I. I Anyone can be taught to sing the notes Mm -hmm. and the rhythms and articulate the words. But the closer you get to a real performance, the more likely it is that I'm going to get excited about your work. Yeah. Absolutely. Communicate. Yeah. So how did you get to the Ryan Center? (laughs) How did you become a young artist at the Lyric Opera Chicago? Now, what, 15, 16 years ago? Right. So... I was at the time, I was attending the Chautauqua Vocal Arts Institute uh, run by, by Marlena Mollis, and that's in upstate New York, and the late and extremely great Richard Perlman, who ran, at the time it was the Lyric Opera Center for American Artists, um, now is the Ryan Opera Center. He uh, happened to be coming for a master class, and I was one of the singers chosen in the master class. Uh, I sang, I was last in the class, and... Seems how last is a good thing for you. Last is a good thing. Last is a good thing for a lot of people. Uh, though I always like to go first when I'm singing in concerts, so I get it out of the way. Um, but yeah, he, um, I was the last that day, and to my astonishment, he, at the end of my singing, he said, well, I have nothing to say, and can you, he went to, he addressed the audience and said, can you tell her all the things that she did well? So I thought that's, okay, this is a good sign. This guy runs the the program. Uh, I want to sing for him when I'm good and ready, and he'll remember me now. And I was encouraged to to sing a few days later for him because he was videotaping auditions. And I thought, well, not this year, of course. I don't want to sing for him this year. And it was one of those situations where I said, well, okay, what's the worst that can happen? He'll say, no, I want to hear you the following year. You did great in the class, but let's hear you in another year. So I did the video audition. Lo and behold, I got to the finals from the video audition. And uh, at the time, Stacy Tappan and Aaron Wall, who are having wonderful careers, were also in that program. And I thought they would only take two sopranos. And those two were in their first year, and they were rolling over to their second year. So I remember after I sang, 
I had my little pencil and paper with all the names of the people, you know, all the, all the uh, returning and the uh, current auditionees. You'd done your homework. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, they gave it. They gave us the sheets, and so mm. we were looking at the names. And so the returning singers will be Stacy Tappan, Aaron Wall, and then my my pencil went down to the mezzos because of course they didn't have any more slots for sopranos. <laughs> when they called my name. I swear to God, I almost dropped the pencil. I I was in complete shock <laughs> and uh, managed to get myself out of the chair and go up to the to the front. And I just, I'm actually, you know, when you remember those things, you kind of feel that same little bit of shock. Yeah. And so I, I, I think I'm still a little surprised that they took me <laughs> all those years ago. Hey, are you a little bit surprised also that you wound up being a classical singer in the first place? I'm a little bit surprised, but not at the same time, because what happened was um, when I was young, I was playing flute in the in the junior high school band. Oh. I went to high school and I assumed that there would be an orchestra and there wasn't. There was only marching band. And so I wasn't. I wasn't really in the mood to join the marching band. A diva uh, from the age of 16. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No marching for this. A diva flutist. does Thank not you. play flute in the marching band. <laughs> Said in your best the diva tr- voice. The Thank truth you. was, the truth was, I was I was very uncoordinated, so I couldn't march and play at the same time. Me too. Time. I couldn't do really? eight to five to save my life. That's oh. why I eventually became the announcer for the marching band oh, because I go. was tripping all over myself great, in the field. Great mind slash talents, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the hope. Yeah, I, I dropped out because. I wasn't any good at that. And um, so my mother encouraged me to to sing. And I joined the, the um, chorus at my school, I mean, the little chamber choir at my school. And I was singing um, jazz and musical theater. And really, I was trying to sing this stuff well. But what was coming out was just this operatic sound, much as I might have really enjoyed singing the other music. And I did. So it wasn't maybe five weeks in to lessons with somebody who was teaching me Miss Saigon and cats <laughs> that she said, you know, I'm sending you on to my teachers and they teach opera. Huh. And I thought, well, okay, opera, whatever this is. I can't even hit a E flat on the staff, but if you say so. And uh, yeah, it was just sort of, it just happened really fast. And I remember just trying to ca- catch up with it. I was being thrown these classical songs and opera arias, and I didn't understand the language. I didn't really understand any of it. I'd never heard opera, really. And so I really, in that sense, opera did find me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I fit myself into the opera world, but I never pursued it because I loved opera. It was the other way around. I sort of learned to— Opera found you rather yeah, than you found opera. And I had to learn to appreciate it from that perspective. And, you know, blue-collar— upbringing, rock and roll in the house. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. My mother had Joni Mitchell, The Doors, all these these wonderful, great, Fleetwood Mac, these great classic rock bands playing all the time. And that's that's what I wanted to, I remember I wanted to be a backup singer for Sting. That was my big dream. <laughs> I wanted to be a backup singer for Sting. <laughs> and uh, I have a friend who has become a backup singer for James Taylor. Oh, you're but she had to marry him to get that job. Oh, okay. <laughs> For a colleague I'm of mine. I'm afraid I'm already married and so, sti- so is Sting, so I can't, I can't take that one. <laughs> so it sounds like your mom was an important influence. Yeah. She, she never wanted to be a stage mother. I remember she, you know, she, she encouraged me to do this. And for a little while, she was playing the role of a stage mother. And she said, you know, I'm going to stop doing this. You're just going to be in the care of your teachers. Um, but she... Sort of, it wasn't part of my life really to listen to musical theater, but she was really, she was really um, into musical theater. As so, well. Yeah. So she, she would listen to a lot of Sondheim and um, the, the sort of, she loved Phantom of the Opera and this was her, her thing. And she, so I didn't like it. I didn't listen to it. I only liked it when I started to sing initially and then I really liked it. But, um, yeah, she was a big influence. She was the one in the family that at least listened to music. But we never had any real classical music. And she liked Madame Butterfly. So she recorded this off of PBS and would watch it every once in a while. But other than that, there was no real classical music. I have a very fond memory of uh, early on in our acquaintance. And I was working... uh, uh, for an organization called the Pasadena Pops for oh, a while. Yes. And you agreed to come and sing a concert with them. 
And it's when I met your mom. And I don't think I've ever met anybody more proud of their daughter's accomplishments. Is she is she keeping track of, of oh, yeah. your, your work and your career? <laughs> She's always my number one fan. I think my family got sick of her sending emails to everybody. Guess where Nicole is now in the world? Guess what she's doing? Guess what award she won? Guess what CD's coming out? She she was. I think she would have been a really great publicist <laughs> for me. <laughs> Instead, she's just a terrific mom she's a who terrific. happens to like Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah, so do I at least. <laughs> so did you uh, did you start taking? classical opera vocal training as early as high school or did this have yes. to wait till college i started at i would say the edge of 16 i was 15 mm-hmm. a few months away from my 16th birthday mm-hmm. when i started to make operatic sounds mm. <laughs> really 16 was the first year i started studying opera and by right before 18 i had decided it would it was what i was going to pursue wow. <laughs> so it didn't take very long just a couple of years of really intense studying. You know, and I was not, it, it was not child's play for me. I was very serious yeah. about it. And where'd you do your undergrad work? Eastman School of Music. So you went yeah. all the way to the other side of the country because you're <laughs> a California girl. Oh yeah, diagonal <laughs> across the country. The first time I saw falling snow, I thought it was ash from a fire. <laughs> it was like California. California girl all the way. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and then when the snow? cold started and did not relent for six months, you thought, what, oh, what kind what of What have mistake? I done here? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's the same school that Renee Fleming went to. So at oh. least you have a, you, there's a good pedigree there. Oh, yes. Did, are there a couple of things in particular you took away from your Eastman years, just that have helped you in your own career and have helped you in your teaching. A couple things that really stuck in your mind and mm-hmm. have been guideposts for you, either people or mm-hmm. events or... I mean, I think that every step I took along the way, I wouldn't have a career if I didn't take those steps. And so Eastman was definitely part of that. It was a great school. It is a great school. It was far enough removed from any big city. Rochester's uh, a small city. Yes, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think... You know what, for, for, your, for your undergrad, I think going to a, a school where it's just the school, mm-hmm. you're not in the middle of New York City, I think that's, that could be good. Not for everybody. Um, DePaul's a little different because it's, very, it's a very small school, and so people get a similar experience, this kind of um, supportive, familial atmosphere. But yeah, Eastman really had that. So I forged friendships, including my husband, my current husband. I forged relationships that have lasted this far and will last for the rest of my life because of the way the school was. There was it was you and your friends and the snow. <laughs> And you didn't go out because of the snow. So you're in this, these little these little kind of, you were in the school or you were in the dorm and that's what you did. And it was your entire life. It was so all-encompassing that I think that was one of the things that really, I, I wasn't distracted. Um, I, really, I really focused 100% on the craft. It was also a very um, cerebral and academic school. Hmm. So I felt encouraged to seek out lots of different types of music, different styles of music, art song. I, I got really into art song and a little bit into modern music, jazz. Um, Eastman's a big jazz school. So um, yeah, in that way, I, th- I just think it was a good school for brainiacs. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. it's not a school for people who just want to go and have an operatic career at 21 years old. It's, it's you, you, it's a, it's a marinating school. So, you know, it's also I, about training the complete musician. Absolutely. And, and the yeah. complete person. Yeah. You know, it's there's just, again, there's no, you don't have big frat parties. <laughs> you don't have a big city to distract you. It was really, that's all there was. And I also forged some really fantastic, um, professional relationships. Benton Hass, for instance, who, who runs this summer program that I've taught at for the last four or five years, um, C. Parlisi Canta, and he's, of course, a legend, um, conductor and coach. And so he was one of those people that remembered me and s- hired me on and la- later in life, these, these contacts. I run into people in the business all the time that are Eastman grads. And once you find out you're an Eastman person, it's like, it's like one huge sorority or fraternity yeah. in that people, people. okay, you're part of the family. Yeah, there are a couple of schools. Oberlin is a little bit like that sure, as well. OBs are that. everywhere, yeah. and Eastman people are are everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. everywhere. OBs have a tendency to be more instrumentalist than, than singers, but really? and you find, them, you find them in every place you go. Yeah. And those formative years, as you say, when it's just you and your 
colleagues, students, and the snow. The snow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. So you could have moved back to California, but you have perched yourself in Chicago <laughs> in I the do. snow. I know. What am I thinking? But there's a really important reason that you're there now, too, is because you have, in, in the middle of a very busy performing career, you took the decision that you wanted to also add teaching. Now, this is something that typically a singer in their 50s or approaching even 60, was, as they begin to see their career changing or winding down, mm-hmm. says, you know, I should teach. I've learned a few mm-hmm. things. But you're right in the heat of battle at the <laughs> absolute zenith of your career. Um, did some people say you're nuts to do it so early? <laughs> I think that's changing. And I and I, I completely agree that that is the traditional trajectory. Yeah. Um, if you recall, I think it was around 2012, I sat down with you and I said, Evans, I want to teach. Is that a good idea? And you were so wonderful and encouraging. You said, you do what you need to do and do what, you, what makes you happy. And I said, okay. You know, so I started to plant the seeds. I think what, there's many reasons why I, t- I took this position. Um, and uh, w- of course, I should say before any of this that DePaul has been such a great university. I, I was courted by some other universities. And the reason I um, didn't sort of go anywhere with those because I did get a lot of offers for singing work. And I had to tell them, look, my schedule is very busy. Do you still want me? And I think a lot of the the universities said, well, yeah, we still want you, but you you can't sing as much as you're singing. DePaul is different. They hired hired on a bunch of wonderful singers, Amanda Majeski and Nick Pond um, and her husband who's singing everywhere. I mean, these and Stacey Tapp and again, singers who are who are singing everywhere. And I think that is why it's worked with me, because they said they they want singers to be out. we advertise for the school, right? You know, we are we yeah. are. Um, You're the best advertisement the school could have. <laughs> well, truly, and we're we're recruiting by being on stage, and um, and so that's the the kind of that's the direction that they're going in. It's it's the same thing I think that Indiana University is is thinking is get the names of the singers on the in the faculty, and that that helps. And we're all very passionate about teaching. It's not just a name. We all, they make sure that everybody that's there really wants to do this. And so we do when we're there. <laughs> we're just singing a lot. I think um, I was interested in teaching because it's a very tangible, um, gratifying experience. You, I'm, I have a lot of opinions <laughs> about... No. Uh, <laughs> a soprano with a lot of opinions? A lot of opinions. What a surprise. A lot of opinions about... Um, <laughs> What's, how singers should be taking care of themselves, how they should be taught to sing, what repertoire they should be focusing on, and how they should be carefully guided into this career and not sort of not sort of uh, thrown into the deep end of the pool. And, and they have to be carefully um, molded. And, and so I, I've always been eager to do that. I started doing master classes, and you see this immediate effect when you tell them to do something, when you ask them to do something, and you see that their eyes get big. Like, oh, I, I, that's, I, that feels so easy. I never thought I could do that. And you think, oh, that's so gratifying. It's so, it's so, it's a, it's a form of giving back, mm-hmm. almost. And again, I didn't sort of intend to do it full time. But I, I took a position at Roosevelt University, kind of coming in and coaching. It's also in Chicago. Coaching didn't have any permanent students. And then I started to get courted by universities. And again, it was like, well, I didn't really feel like it was time to be full time. But the universities that came courting, I went and applied anyway, because I thought, well, this is something I eventually want. And maybe they'll be willing to work with me. And DePaul was. They were willing to work with me in letting me be gone as much as I have been. And I eventually will slow down because it's important to, for me also to have that balance in life. Not yet, please. Uh, (laughs) Well, (laughs) it keeps you home enough that you have, you can have real relationships and you can see your friends and see your family and your husband can get a job. He doesn't have to travel with you everywhere. You know, this is, these are parts of life. It's not just all about singing. And I think 
I've done enough in my career that I can feel happy enough slowing down a little bit mm-hmm. and, and kind of being more balanced. And perhaps being a little more choosy in the things that you do, Absolutely. roles and engagements that are gratifying musically as well as not just to be another place yep. to say, I have sung X role. Yep, in, yeah. in order to pay the bills. You're doing things because you there's an artistic purpose for it. And speaking of coming to a place where you've now, this will be your, in the summer of 2019, your sixth appearance, your 10th anniversary with the company. Um, (laughs) And it's a role with which you are particularly identified, Juliet and Romeo and Juliet. You've sung it lots of places. You sang in Paris, if I remember right. Yes. I didn't do it in Paris. I I sang it in Berlin. Berlin, yes. it's It's one of my favorite roles. How did you, how did you, um, encounter the role first? I mean, you obviously had to learn it, but is there, are there things about assimilating this character into your repertoire that you have found particularly gratifying? Sure. Well, she's, <laughs> so many things. Um, first, I'll, I'll say I did this for the first time in 2006, and it was Frederick Antun was my tenor. Is your tenor in here in Cincinnati? Yeah, so it's a, it's a reunion. and I didn't plan that, by the way, and I didn't know it. I must yeah. just be clairvoyant. Yeah, you, oh, you are. You. But uh, that was, gosh, that would be 13 years ago. Yeah. And I'd always sung the aria, the big famous aria, Je veux vivre, which all the sopranos know and they all sing. And I remember really, really loving the rest of the opera. When I learned it, I, I it's... It's an opera that kind of brings you. It's like Traviata without the, the, um, the stress. <laughs> Fair enough. Traviata yeah. is so stressful. Yeah. But um, because in Traviata you carry the opera entire show. Romeo and Juliet, although you are an important character in the opera, it isn't just about you. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Gounod has written this incredible canvas uh, where it seems like everybody gets to shine, including the chorus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's well, certainly Romeo carries half the show. Yeah. I think it's almost harder for him in some ways, but yes, it's completely it's it's this incredibly organic experience. I think for a soprano, it 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 brings you from the the lighter coloratura music that moves and and it brings you through the evolution of her character into she grows from a girl into a woman and you get to explore that it's all in the music, right? You get to explore that through the music and by the time you're done, you just feel you feel your heart is just wrenched out of your chest. So it's hard for me not to cry at the very end because this music, the love theme comes back at the end. And a, a spoiler alert: they both die. Thank you, Shakespeare. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> as they're dying, that love music comes back, and you think, "Oh, it's so tragic, but it's also so beautiful because this is." This music is their love music. They're going into the afterlife together. And so it's tragic, but it's beautiful. And I don't feel a lot of operas the way I feel the Romeo and Juliet. Maybe I'm schmaltzy, and the music maybe is just so gorgeous. It's just such a gorgeous music. You're not schmaltzy. You're a true romantic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. But I just really respond to that. And, and the the progression of the music is written so brilliantly. You don't. I don't get fatigued in the way I do with some of the other operas because of the Puno's writing or maybe just the French style suits me but um, have you looked at the other heroine in have you looked at Faust Marguerite I I never have been offered that I think it is typically offered to a really bigger voice but I'm starting to I'm starting to look at that as a role that I want to sing. It's it's on my like short list of the roles that I haven't done that I'd like that you'd to do. Like to do. I remember very early on we had a conversation about the poison aria. That yeah. it was one of the it was it was the one last little building block in taking the role on. What's difficult about the poison aria? Where it comes in the show? Mm-hmm. Um, no, actually, I think where it comes in the show is brilliant because again, I don't feel too tired. The the act for love duet is is so just it fits me like a glove I just love it and so my voice is really warm at that point I think it can be difficult because of some of the tessitura some of the sustained tessitura and depending on what house you're singing it in and who's conducting it could be easy or it could be really hard and it's been I've gotten through it of course all times I did it in Atlanta a couple years ago um, and it was I, I wouldn't say it was easy but it was cake compared to a time that I had done before and 
and I know that was my conductor. So um, it'll be easy this summer. Oh, too. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's, yeah, but um, yeah, it just has very sus- high sustained um, singing, and you don't get a lot of time to breathe. It's similar to Judy, uh, mm-hmm. which is the oh the Carmen the, 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 the Michaela aria from Carmen, Carmen yeah. that you don't get a lot of time to breathe. Yeah. But it's higher in the voice, which can be good or bad, depending <laughs> on what kind of range you have. But uh, yeah, she's um, she's definitely. I think in the beginning, the, the 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 bigger challenge is in the very beginning, maintaining that youthful sound because my voice has grown, it's gotten bigger, um, and it's gotten lower. So it it's a it's a bit of work to get it back up to that higher tesatura but it's really good for singers to have that challenge constantly well a good example probably for you and i I would imagine you've you've heard this is uh morella franey was about your age when she made the recording and she talked about it in an interview many years later about how she hesitated but then she said but it's good for me Mm -hmm. to to oblige myself to bring that lightness back into my voice even after i've gone on to sing heavier roles because it keeps you healthy oh when i just spent three months doing bess and porgy and bess and i I tried to pick up some other music right afterwards and i just thought this is this is crazy i can't sing this anymore and i thought no just give it some time (laughs) but it's if you don't do that if you only sing the big stuff um big role followed by big role followed by big role then after a while, you sort of get out of shape to do the yeah. lighter stuff. So, it's like having the wrong kind of exercise pattern. Yeah. You know? You, it's, you know, the muscle confusion. To yeah. give, you, you know, you have to do a little bit of that with, with singing. With singing as well. You have to, you have to come back to Mozart. <laughs> the Mozart Requiem we just did. Oh, okay, that's how you sing, you know, high light singing. That's, that's how it's done. Took me a few days, but back to normal. Sounded just fine. <laughs> but another uh, off the, not off the beaten path, but um, so you're famous for what I call shy violets and, tragi- and tragic heroines, <laughs> but you also have an unexpected, I think for some people, gift for comedy. Musetta, <laughs> early on in your career, of course, she's, a, she's not necessarily comedic, but she has to be a coquette. Right. But you created Rosalinda for Cincinnati Opera in Fledermaus. What was it like doing comedy? Did you enjoy it? You were fantastic I, I at it. I love that you said that I have a gift for it because I always think that's the hardest thing for me to pull off. Why I, so? Because I, I, you, you did a beautiful job. Well, it's the, we had a great you know, director. and it's, it's, I think I'm actually, people who know me know that I'm really goofy. I'm a really goofy, silly person. And... <laughs> try to be like I try to be very professional most of the time because you're an but opera singer right but isn't Just it fun to be goofy and oh, silly once oh, in a well while well that's how I'm most people that say okay you're completely different off the stage than you are on the stage I say okay good those who know that know me um, so I think if I'm given the opportunity to do that I can be a, I can be a really funny person but I think what's so what's so scary about that is you unless it's encouraged then I never take the chance you know, some people can be very funny, and they just don't care if people don't laugh at them, or with them rather. Mm-hmm. But I, I get, I still have that shy girl from junior high school in me that I have to feel the room first before I do anything that stretches me beyond kind of this poised um, persona. And so, doing a comedic role like that is is an opportunity, especially if I'm directed. Then I, okay, I have a, I have a skeleton to work with, and now I can start bringing my personality through. I remember I did a, um, the rooster in the cunning little vixen in Chicago at the Chicago Lyric Opera back in 2002, and everybody said you're so funny, and I said, well, well, okay, but that's my director. But I think maybe I, I think I can be funny. I just have to, again, it's be given permission and direction yeah. to do so. Well, right, and I. Yeah. I on a side note, that's that is given. A lot of kids want to sing, for instance, and they just need permission. Somebody, see, they secretly saying, "Somebody, please ask me to sing." And so that's the same thing. A lot of people have these little hidden talents and hidden abilities, and if somebody asks them to do it, if somebody makes a safe space for them to do it, they can do it. And that's kind of the way it is with me in comedy, at least. I just need a safe space, and then I'm good. Safe space. Let's talk about the teaching room. That has to be a safe space. So I'm a nervous young singer coming in with for my first lesson with Professor Cabell. 
What's what's your procedure for me in my first lesson? <laughs> well, I do tell them all. I said, first of all, this is a safe space. So whatever silly things I'm going to have you do, just know that there's no judgment. You can crack on all your notes. You can sing flat. You can do whatever you need to do. You know, you're going to be rolling on a medicine ball and doing all kinds of funny things in this lesson. So, you know, if you need to cry, whatever you need to do, you can do. This is a safe space. I give them the whole spiel. There's a there's a it's really important to do all your talking in the first lesson. You know, you tell them what your concept is for breathing. You tell them how you want them to feel the sound, um, the resonance in their voice, and um, talk about tension release. And uh, I ask them a lot about themselves and what they kind of want out of the career and out of singing. Um, and then we just make sounds. <laughs> and we make we just get the sounds out. Mm. And a lot of them are really nervous. I think a lot of them, I'm at the collegiate level, so they have been singing. But if you don't, if you have somebody who doesn't really know how to sing or just kind of makes a little bit of sound and they want they want to sing, you have to be even more gentle. And you have to make it a game and you have to play, even if they're 30 years old and they say, well, I sing in the bed, I sing, sing in the shower. <laughs> I, somebody said I had a good voice. So you get them to just kind of make noises, little sirens, you know, and um, singing on vowels and, and just, just making sounds. And trying to get them, it's really important, you, you have to get them out of the mindset that they have to make a good sound to begin with. So I always say unlearn, just throw away everything you learn and let's just make sounds and talk to each other. So we do, we do a lot of talking work. If you can speak through a song on pitch and then we can work from there. Wow. That's, that's how they taught um, in the movie Chicago, I guess that's how they taught uh, Renee Zellweger and these, how, to these, how to sing. You just talk on pitch. Like that. Yeah. Wow. And then you just make sure your breath is going the whole time. And that's the start of it. So as a teacher, uh, do you sing in your own lessons? Or is that, oh, is yeah. that, oh, so you do. I'm, now you demonstrate. I don't think I'm supposed to, but I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> you love it. I do. Well, I get, <laughs> really, I get really tired, you know, at the end of the day, because I've been demonstrating a lot. Uh, ideally, and I, and I do it a lot less now, ideally, you want to be able to get them to feel it and discover it themselves without them having to copy you. Some of them really respond well to imitation. And some of them, if you imitate or if you demonstrate something, then they'll try to sound like you and they'll do something wrong. So I, I even say out loud, I say, okay, so demonstration's not gonna work. <laughs> and I tell my student, okay, remind me not to do that with you. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so so there's lots of students have lots of different styles of learning. Some need mechanistic um, explanation. You need to tell them where their jaw needs to be, where their tongue needs to be, how to feel their their air exactly where that needs to be. And others they need imagery. For instance, you know, feel like the air is coming out of a teepee at the top of your head. That's a way to explain, you know, positioning and breath control. Or uh, and some of them you sing for them a note or two and they're able to sing it back and that's what it is. So there's lots of different styles and I think that's the most challenging thing about teaching is understanding all the different styles of your students that they need to, uh, their, their learning styles and remembering to do that consistently with them. Yeah. So you're a singer in the absolute height of your career and you've sung a lot of roles in a lot of places, mm -hmm. metropolitan opera, big opera houses in Europe. Uh, but for every singer, even if they've been active for a while, there, there must be a wish list. Do you have a little bit of a wish list? We've talked about Marguerite and Faust, which is something you've been looking at. Are there yeah. a couple of other things that you'd like to, <laughs> like, why has no one invi ever invited me to sing X? You know, I've <laughs> never been offered Fiordaligi in Cozy. What? I've never sung Fiordaligi. You're perfect for it. Well, and that that is, I don't know why I've never been offered Fiorda well, I guess I have to do Cozy again. I haven't done it since I think my second season, but I think we're due. That'll almost completely complete your Mozart gallery. Uh, yeah, the Mozart Well, cycle. you'll have done all three da Pontes at least. That's, that's for sure. right. That's yeah. right. So yeah. never, never, never a Fiorda I've never sung Uzalka. And I think uh, also beautiful I would like to move into that if it's yeah. not too big of a role for me. Yeah. Um, I know the, uh, what's the, you mean the La Rondine of Puccini? Rondine, yes. Yeah. I was slated to do a Rondine somewhere. 
I believe the company folded. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so I guess Puccini's operetta will yeah. do that to you. <laughs> but it is a very charming show. Yeah. Very, yeah. very charming opera. I saw it once in London in a sort of a semi stage performance. Really? And it's Beautiful, and your role uh, is ideal, and you have the hit tune. I do have the hit tune, yeah. yeah. So that's something I'd like to do. I wouldn't mind doing a Mahagoni. Really? Now there's file. off the beaten path. That's, I think I sang that for you. Yes, I think the, that was yeah. the one I sang for you. Yeah. Um, not necessarily something people picture me in, but I think I, I could take on the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Any Verdi. Alice and Falstaff? I've been offered an Alice. Again, couldn't do the job for yeah. some, some. I forget what the reason was. but I And was it doesn't get done very it. often, but Amelia and Simon Bocanegra? I never would have thought that. I, I think the verity for me is, I have such a soft, it, by soft I don't mean quiet, I mean my voice is... is Peaches and cream. Yeah, not and there's like and a steel. there's a bit of a veil on it, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sort of cut the way I think Verdi should. I can sing a Violetta mm-hmm. because she's sung by lots of different types of singers. Oh sure. Um, but it's harder for me to pinpoint. At one point, I thought an Annetta, but I'm growing out of that color in my voice. Yeah. So no, you would you would be perfect as Alicia. Really? In I, oh yeah. Because I can see that because it allows you to have that. That comedic sort of, not goofy, but that comedic, because she's in charge. Of right, course. right, right. She's going to make sure that Sir John gets his comeuppance, and she's going to be the, you know, the queen of the fairies, and everything is going to happen the way she wants it to. She's a control freak, day. like me. She's a control freak, exactly. <laughs> and she outwits her husband, just like uh-huh. the Countess does in The Marriage of Figaro. There you go. Yeah, that could be fun. I, I, so I basically, honest- this this area where you're growing as a singer yeah. is what I would call the. The, the the full lyric voices. Full uh, lyric and yeah. no bigger. Yeah. I mean, again, I've done the best, but I think the reason why best is okay to work is there's not a lot of preconceptions about True. what kind of voice she is. True. And, um what kind of actress she is is extremely important, but what kind of voice she is can be a very right. And depending yeah. on who you work with, they'll work with you. Yeah, the ENO production we did was supposed to be naturalistic, so it, it worked. Yeah, um, but that type of role, that fach, which is the vo- voice category, is a little bit. It's kind of like one notch heavier than the stuff that I should be singing. So I've been offered. Believe it or not, I've been offered a couple of Toscas, which, of course, I promptly turned down. No, please don't. <laughs> I promptly turned those down. Um, I understand where they were coming from, and they were like small European festivals. Sure. Um, but, but although, you know, although it's not done very often, uh, you'd be perfect for Suor Angelica if you're looking for another Puccini oh, really? role. Oh. I always thought that was too big for, for my voice, no, too. No, not at all. No. I mean, you have the confrontation with Zia Principessa a little bit, but it's not heavily scored. And, mm. of course, the aria is one of the great sucker punches in the entire <laughs> opera repertoire. Well, and you can do Johnny Schicchi on the same... Uh, exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> and Lauretta. Of course, I've sung Lauretta. Lauretta is perfect for you. So yeah. your vo- you, continue to, you continue to search for things, but I, I, sense, a, I sense an artist who is content in many, many ways. That's very Not particularly restless, uh, mm-hmm. always up for new challenges because that's how you stay fresh as an artist. Yeah. But you seem to have found an, a, a wonderful equilibrium of, again, adding, the, adding teaching to your career at a time when you are valuable in ways that a retiring singer can't be because you're mm-hmm. still out there doing it. You're bringing reports back from the right, field, as it were, right, exactly. back from the battlefront. I can tell you exactly how it's done I'm because I'm doing it. I'm a spy behind enemy. <laughs> yes, exactly. But not. But again, but but so happy to have this kind of balance. Mm-hmm. Is this something that was this a long range plan from a very long time ago? Or yeah, you're very perceptive as always. <laughs> I think um, so. For me, you know, I. I I had a goal, and that was to sing Mimi in La Boheme, and that was to sing at the Paris Opera. And I got the opportunity to do the two in one, so I got to sing Mimi at the Paris Opera. (laughs) And that was in 2014. And I remember, I, I, I told everybody, including myself, I said, there, I've done everything on my bucket list. So my bucket list might be shorter than others, but you know, I won Cardiff in 2005. And I think I had in that nearly 10 years between 5 and 14, 
a career that could have been stretched out to 20 years. I mean, it was constant, constant. I was learning five new roles a year. It was one thing after another. I was going, and even this is even a couple of years ago, even still, I was going back and forth, doing a show, flying to the next place to rehearse, flying back to do show number two, flying back to, to rehearse, and just this sort of pace that I don't know a lot of singers who had that kind of a, of a pace. So while Or the that num- kind of stamina to be able oh, to pull it off. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I keep doing it because I am continuing to do it. But um, that was, that's the truth of it, that mm. I actually had, I think, so far in, in my, my resume could stretch easily 20 or 25 years yeah. or, or more. You just crammed a lot in a shorter I just period crammed. Of time. So I am content. I am content because I, I did so much. And I have sung so, I've sung everywhere, you know, not, not literally everywhere, but I've sung everywhere I've wanted to. And, so um, now you can afford to not necessarily be choosy, but to let the work match your temperament. Exactly, yeah. and just what a wonderful I, place to be. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful that I. Reminds me of a, a some something once uh, an image I once saw that um, of a very very strong man holding an infant so lovingly, meaning that from from strength comes gentleness Mm -hmm. and from experience comes that ability to choose Mm -hmm. and to and to do things that that really feel gratifying to you not as it were you're not checking things off a list anymore now you're doing it for artistic reasons as much as anything else and i'm singing in companies i enjoy Mm. singing in i really like I love Cincinnati Opera. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. We love you too. <laughs> I love I love Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I love Detroit. I love these companies in Minneapolis. I love these companies that are like the heart of America. They are the places that serve everybody. And singing at the Met is really hard. <laughs> I'm very fortunate and grateful to have sung at the Met. And... And Chicago is great, but it's, it's really your hard. It's your hometown company, too. Basically. It is. I've yeah, sung more roles there than I have here, actually, but yeah. I'm, I'm gaining on <laughs> I'm gaining on you. Cincinnati is gaining on <laughs> Chicago. But, um, but yeah, it's just those, those – to me, it's because I feel like the, they are the audiences I can communicate with. You know, they're not coming with a, a pencil and a, a pad of paper and recording all of the notes you sing flat. Well, it's a little <laughs> it's bit like you talked about in the beginning of our conversation about auditions. It's not yeah. about it's not about can you hit the high note. It's what's going to be the overall artistic experience. Exactly, yeah. and the level at the level at Cincinnati is has always been so great that I'm able to do things artistically that you know. Of course, I won't name names, but there are companies that that they call themselves some of the greatest companies in the world. And Cincinnati is one of the greatest companies in the world. But in a lot of ways, Cincinnati quality can trump, try, uh, trump, 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 it's a hard word to say, <laughs> trump, trump those other companies mm-hmm. um, because of the level of freedom and artistry that's encouraged here. So it's um, a safe space. It's a in safe, the very best sense of the word. It's a safe space, but it's also a top-notch company. It's not just a safe space that happens to be a, a small company or a regional company. It's Cincinnati Opera. It's, it's I'm how blushing, are you, 100? I'm blushing collectively for all <laughs> no, of our it's colleagues. it's true, it's true. <laughs> it's one of the best. But, you know, in, in the short span, and as life goes, in the short span of the career that you've had already, uh, technology has changed dramatically. Uh, and yes. have has it helped you? Has some, Have some of the things that have... That are that are available to you now, uh, as an artist and as a teacher, yeah. uh, been of benefit to you that might not have been, let's say, when you were beginning your career. Sure, sure. All the kids know YouTube, right? So you have a lot of kids who know a lot of singers hmm. that they might not have known mm-hmm. if it wasn't for YouTube. They have to be told sometimes who to listen to, but you can find everybody on YouTube. That's true. And it's inclu- the encyclopedia oh, of the world. It's amazing <laughs> yeah. and. So anytime I'm learning a a piece of music and I've learned it and I want to listen to lots of different interpretations, I don't have to go to the public library to find these these recordings. I just go on YouTube and it's all there. The wealth of the entire world is on the computer. (laughs) So so in that way, technology, you can get word for word translation, five different word for word translations and compare and contrast. 
you used to have to go check out that one Nico Castell book in the library and it was always gone. So, you know, it's, it's, we are spoiled for choice. If anything, it's a little bit overwhelming. But also there's no excuse not to have a sense of the past. No, but they, but, but the kids really do need to be told who to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because again, you're spoiled for choice. Think about every decade that's come along. That's 10 more years of fantastic singers who have a legacy that's now available. So back in my day, (laughs) you had the eighties and beyond and before. That's true. And those are all great singers, but you've had now like so many, so many more great singers. And so they don't really know who to listen to. And uh, while they're all good, they should still be listening to the older singers and the golden age singers. Um, I think in some ways technology can do a disservice to to singers who are coming up in the business and they're being compared to so many great voices. So y- your individuality is always put in question when you have that many people to compare yourself to. Compa- and people who are listening and hiring, I mean, what do you do? You have hundreds of great sopranos to think, well, how is this person going to make, what are they going to do differently? So the pressure's on and you have public scrutiny now that's there permanently. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more pressure, I think, in that way. You have people videotaping secretly dress rehearsals where somebody might be sick or somebody might be marking and that goes up on YouTube and you have no legal recourse to have it taken down. You have these tenor fail videos where they do cracked high notes in a row and they tell you who they are and it's just nasty. You have a lot of like nasty behavior. Um, but if you can look past that and just look at the glass half full, you have a lot of really great um, opportunities to use educate te- yourself. Yeah, use the technology. You, the yeah. These kids that would spend hundreds of dollars on press kits, they can all just put it on a free website now. So, but that's that many more people who you're kind of lost having in that ocean through. of. Yeah, it's <laughs> having true. to sift through in your position, right? <laughs> what do you do? I hear, I, I actually took a little survey of last year and I heard 487 oh auditions last year. But you know what? I'm going to do it again this year, and I'm going to do it again next year, because every once in a while, and I don't mean this to be aggrandizing of my present company, you walk into a room, and nobody makes an impression except the last person. And then that last person becomes a colleague and a friend for life. So mm-hmm. I'll keep doing it as long as you keep doing it, let me tell you. And speaking of um, keeping at it, um, on a performance day, I mean, you're, you've, you're one of those people who, you know, as you say, you'll spend Tuesday teaching, mm-hmm. and then you'll, you'll fly Wednesday and be rehearsing on Wednesday evening for a symphonic engagement or something. Do you have any little uh, tried and true rituals that you, uh, either for travel or for performance mm-hmm. day in particular? Do you have the mm-hmm. typical, do you eat a steak at lunchtime <laughs> or do you sleep all afternoon? Yeah. What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the diva advice? I do. <laughs> um, First of all, I keep quiet. If I had to sing tomorrow, I wouldn't be talking right, right. now. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> I'm glad you're not singing tomorrow because no, we're no, enjoying no. this conversation. I, yeah, immensely. me too. No, I always, I always, am, as much as possible, I'm on vocal rest on an engagement. Mm-hmm. Of course, I can't be in the studio when I'm teaching, but on an engagement. Um, so usually I'll eat a big meal, maybe four hours prior to singing, you can't sing when you're full and you can't sing when you're hungry. So it's gotta be this perfect sort of timing to get that figured out. Um, And I'll be very, I'll stay very hydrated, hopefully have a humidifier going. I try not to be too obsessive and pedantic about the routine because sometimes it doesn't work. You know, none of that stuff. Eating late at night, you can get acid reflux. So I just try not to do that. Um, I, what else? Rest? It's really simple. Yeah, Do you I sleep a lot I sleep the, the night a before. Lot. Actually, yes. When I got here on Thursday, I had a performance, thir- I mean, a rehearsal Thursday night. Friday, <laughs> I slept really late and then I napped for two hours. And then, same thing the next day, slept really late, late and napped for two hours. So I think I get an excessive amount of sleep. The day of a show, usually what I'll do is I know some singers who work out. I get too tired if I do that. Mm. So I, um, I kind of like just stay in bed and order room service or I might go out for like one meal. But what I what I like to feel when I get on stage is restless. 
I like to feel like, oh my God, I need to run around the block or something. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. Get me on that stage. I don't like to feel tired in any way. So I will actually starve myself of activity until I get on stage. And then I. It's like the horse getting ready for the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, kept in the stall and kind of limited view. Uh And then you see the field. That's exactly right. And I won't do anything that takes any kind of brain power. So I'll just watch TV and play like a little video game. I I don't, I try not to study music, especially if I have a performance that I have to be memorized for. I try not to study any music. It's just Any other music, in other words. Other you're, you're music. Not, you're not working on the next role exactly. the day of a performance no, no, of no. Don Elvira. No, no, no. I, unless much... I have to. I used to have to do that. Yeah. It was hard. And then you get up there and you think, what am I, what opera am I singing? So, well, supposedly Dame Joan Sutherland, because she sang so much of this bel canto repertoire with interchangeable <laughs> melodies and, and texts, would get up and start to sing the text oh, no. from Sonambolo to an aria from Puritani. Nobody heard... would know except her and her husband who was yeah. in the pit. So, yep. yes, it can. Yep. It has pitfalls. Yep. A famous countertenor told me the same thing. He's like, oh, I, I'm singing another, I'm learning two Handel operas and I'm performing one. And he's like, I'm just starting to switch up the recitative. <laughs> oh, no, how do you do that? So concentrate, Impossible. concentrate, concentrate. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Impossible. It seems, it seems still in the, as it were, in the high noon of your career, as we've, as I said a little bit earlier, you are balanced um, and content but you're also very focused. And it sounds like you've always been pretty focused. You're not someone easily distracted by <laughs> the shiny object when it comes to your work. Yeah. Did that come early? Yes, I was, I don't know, maybe a bit of a, well, it depended. When it, if it was a subject I enjoyed, mm-hmm. then I was very dedicated to it. Um, I have to admit, if it was a subject I wasn't that into, um, I was probably a good con artist. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I con artist. Do, oh yeah. Oh I my would, gosh. I yes. <laughs> so the subjects I was really into, of course, right brain stuff. You know, yeah. Just I wanted to be a writer, so I would just submit like 50 pages when they asked for 10, and I was just over the top. It was too much. <laughs> Teachers probably hated me. Overachiever. And then when it came to math and science, I just. I would pretend like I, I basically would do the, the bare minimum to get by. Um, and when I say a con artist, I just mean like, you know, if if I could get through with like an extra credit assignment to just bump my grade up to where it needed to be. And I never got less than a B, of course. Um, but Because you were you're, you're, an, you're enough of an achiever in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Over <laughs> not achieving is getting a B, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, so that's – that's and I, I would say that's probably – followed me through life. If it's something like taxes or something I just hate, I just do the the bare minimum I need to do in life. But if it's something I'm really into, I'm You go for I it. live in that world, you know, and and that's it's a good thing. It's a good thing and it gives you balance. I think if you were really um, a perfectionist about everything in life, you probably would burn out very yeah. fast. So I just pick and choose my focus. And I've always been, when I was 16, 17, I was so focused on singing. I would read a lot of the biographies, autobiographies of opera singers and listen to recordings all the time. Um, You're a real music nerd. I was a real music nerd. I'm less of a music nerd now. I think I've learned so many roles and I know so much I can relax a little bit. But um, there are certain things that I've never, I have to admit, I've never learned to play piano. And because that to me is... It's extremely important, I know, in retrospect, but I'm I'm 41 now. It's like, okay, I've gotten by without having to play the piano, so I do the bare minimum. <laughs> but yeah. you, but as you as you said before, though, for those things that are that are important to you in your career and in your own life, you mm-hmm. have focus, you have energy. It's yes. it's a little bit about any artist, as you say, can't be all things to all people because no. then you're you're really you're really only doing half the job. Absolutely. Yeah. We and only have a certain amount of, uh, as it were, psychic energy. Yeah. Better to apply it and and maybe surround yourself with people who like to do taxes. Uh, <laughs> pay people to do that. I told my husband. My husband says, you know, you should you should learn to do a bunch of things, that, you know, yourself. Learn how to fix this. You know, learn how to paint that. And I said, well, or. <laughs> or, or work hard work so hard, that someone else can buy Or work hard, pay somebody else to do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. 
Nicole, you thank you so much. We end every one of these conversations with the same set of somewhat silly but delightful questions. So our <laughs> so the people who are listening can get a sort of a, a level set of what all sorts of people think about certain things having to do with Cincinnati and also <laughs> having to do with our conversation. Um, so I'm going to start. Uh, what do you usually have for breakfast? <laughs> These days, nothing. I'm trying to do intermittent fasting. And when I don't, I have a breakfast that my husband makes, which is egg scramble and hash browns. It's amazing. Oh, <laughs> lovely. It's amazing. How do you deal with stress? Oh, shop, go to Disneyland, um, watch TV. Shop, Disneyland TV. Those are all very good pastimes. Who is... If not your most important mentor, one of your most important mentors in your career. Besides you? <laughs> You're very Seriously, sweet. you. <laughs> you, Evans. Well, thank you, you are one of my most important mentors. My other one's my manager, Michael Benchtritt, Columbia Artist. Michael's a good man, too. He sure is. And boy, what he doesn't know about music is not worth learning. Oh, my God. That's for sure. Um, what are you reading? <sighs> I'm reading the latest Ken Follett novel. Ooh. Gosh, and I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> well, there are so many of them. You are to be forgiven. No, the, no, but the, it's, you're the, forgiven it's the, the immediate it's the, title. <laughs> it's the third in the in the uh, trilogy, uh, the medieval trilogy. Oh, okay. So uh, the first one was Pillars of the Earth, and then it was World Without End. So I'm reading the third one, and I can't. It's on my Kindle, so I don't have the cover on my my brain. So it's the third one. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about this already, but are there TV series or podcasts that you enjoy in particular? TV series, Outlander. I also really like uh, The Good Place. That's my new favorite. Yeah. Are there apps on your phone that you find particularly <laughs> useful in any area? Kindle and the Disneyland Wait Times app. Because I can't go <laughs> <Are> there. You, <laughs> you are kind of obsessed with Disneyland. I am. I can't go there every day, so sometimes I just like to find out how long the wait for Pirates of the Caribbean is. <laughs> um, you've been to Cincinnati a lot, and I know you do eat out from time to time. Have you developed a, a favorite or two over the years? I have not. Isn't that terrible? But you just I have to keep coming back until I you cook, get one. I cook all the time. No, I'll, I'll have an answer for you in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of career advice from a lot of people, but can you remember something in particular in the past that has stuck with you? Piece of advice, a little homily, a little, little something that you know someone said. Always make sure you dot dot dot. Yeah. Um, or turn it around. Yes. What career advice do you give your students? Well, I'll, I'll take I'll take some really random advice that actually is really great from Joyce DiDonato when I was doing the um, Capoletti with her. She said, everything's in the eyes. And so I tell my students that. Everything's in the eyes. When you tell people to do something and they, they're trying really hard with their bodies and their hands and everything and their eyes are dead, you could stand still as a stone. But if your eyes are acting, everything's in the eyes. Um, do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Stevie Nicks. Last but not least, um, what's your elevator speech or approach <laughs> to try and convince someone to give opera a try for the first time? <sighs> try to give opera a try to go to the opera? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Besides, come see me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you if you've ever watched a foreign movie that you've enjoyed, then you will love the opera. Perfect. Thank you, Nicole Cabell, so much. We have had 10 years of enjoying you as an artist with us in Cincinnati Opera, and we look forward to at least another decade to come. Likewise. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.